Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Learning Curve Thespian Edition. Gerard and I are coming at you from our various locales with, um, we're going to, today we're going to talk education. We're going to talk Shakespeare. We're going to talk language and teaching. It's, it promises to be a fun-filled show. Gerard, I'm pretty excited for our, um, very awarded, shall we say, uh, guest who we'll be speaking with today, Rafe Esquith. Before we get started, Gerard, I want you to tell me a little bit about your experience reading Shakespeare, whether maybe it was in, I don't know, for most of us, it's probably in high school, right? Is it something that you uh, you enjoy as an adult? Very interesting question. So short answer is no, I did not read <laughs> Shakespeare in high school, and it wasn't because my college prep Catholic high school did not offer it. It's because I was on the athletic uh, track, and it's not because all athletes oh. at our school did not read it, but I was on the special, like, really low track for athletes. So, no, I actually was uh, – I was never introduced to Shakespeare uh, in high school. Uh, all I did in high school was shake my bottom. So if there was any was shaking, say, wait, it was that. Are you a slacker? Oh, my gosh. I was a – I wasn't a slacker as much as a – untaught student and so i didn't have my epiphany about learning until i went to a community college so i, just, I, just, I didn't get any I of that stuff love to tease you i just love to tease you but even the fact that you use the word track there i think you know boy that should give us all a lot of pause but we've we've learned a lot since then i mean i know you're very very young gerard but you know oh, hopefully of course. yes of course of course now do you read shakespeare with your kids I do not. Uh, my yeah, I wife don't does. I just wanted to put you yep. on the spot. She does? Oh, see, she's perfect. Kimberly's perfect. Yep. If you guys don't know yep. this, Different. Kimberly Robinson, perfect. Except in her right. choice of marriage, you know, guy. But well, other than that, she, she's done well. Oh, you you work, but I went there for you. And then you've already, oh, of course, affirmed humility. it. Oh, the humility. Oh, Gerard, <laughs> we love you in the learning curve, as do your listeners. So all to say, listen, we've got a really cool, very interesting show. We've also got a couple stories of the week to get to. So, um, man, I have been thinking and talking a lot about tests and accountability lately. I got to tell you, Gerard, I think I've, I've said it before. I think accountability is important. I think tests are important. But some really interesting news out of the University of California. I mean, okay, let, let me rephrase that. It's interesting. It is not surprising, probably, right? So this from Bloomberg and um, it, the, the title of this article is University of California set to drop SAT, ACT through 2025. So this is, um, like I said, not surprising, probably expected, but boy, we're on the leading edge of a trend here. And I have to share that um, my own daughter, my fifth grader, um, who attends a private school where they take norm reference tests because, yes, kids in private schools do take tests. Lest we forget, mm -hmm. it happens most of the time, right? She was taking the Educational Record Bureau test for her first time. They missed last year due to COVID. And boy, was that kid anxious. It was my first test. And what I kept saying to her was, listen, these tests aren't about you. These tests aren't about you. These tests are for the school. These tests are for your teacher to figure out, you know, how how they can help you better, how you're doing in comparison to other kids so that they can fill any gaps so we can make this a better experience for you. Well, she didn't buy it, you know, whatever, go mom. <laughs> um, but it, it's just, so this story, this, this emerging thread, I mean, I think we're all expecting now that, you know, most, it's, we've gone from test optional to just like not going to happen with SATs and ACTs. And I have to say, as much as I am a proponent of, test-based accountability, um, especially as a mechanism for shining a light upon when schools aren't doing well by kids, especially in the K-12 system, I don't know that SATs and ACTs necessarily fall into that category. So I'm watching this with great interest. I think that it might be the right move. I wonder, I mean, SAT and ACT, these companies are already doing a lot of great work in the kinds of assessments I think we should be concentrating on, which is those formative assessments that really help us diagnose you know, what kids need and learning gaps. The really interesting thing about this is that we've seen this at the UC system and we've seen this in other places. And that is that as these test optional or just drop in the test policies go into effect, we're seeing a lot of differences in the application pool. So just in January, the UC system announced 
that applicant data for fall 2021, um, it indicated that there were higher numbers of applicants from first-generation students, black students, Latino students, whatever. So I think it it speaks a lot to this idea, and maybe you'll push back on me here, Gerard. I don't know. Feel free. That um, it could be that these particular tests, uh, are not are not doing universities a favor and certainly aren't doing students a favor because um, a lot of kids, I'm going to bet, that might not have been admitted to the UC system um, based on if, if test scores were a factor, were a consideration, will probably be very successful in that system. So I'm, I'm curious to see uh, the extent to which universities come up with different mechanisms to gauge um, what kind of skills kids have when they enter college, because by, by, to be fair, they need competencies, right? I mean, I, as a as a former teacher at Boston University, I was often shocked and awed by the lack of writing skills. Sorry, students, if you're listening, but you know, we we need to talk about what are the skills that kids need to be successful after high school and in college. And I don't know that these tests necessarily give us that information. What do you think? I think it was last week, my story of the week was about private schools who decided to uh, drop the uh, the SAT uh, or test. It was test optional. And they identified that only 20 to 30 percent of the students, um, when they had the option uh, to drop it, decided not to submit it, that, you know, 80 to 70 percent of the students still did that there was an uh, uptick in the number of students of color, uptick in first generation, uh, but that was for different reasons. Now, this is the University of California, large public system. Uh, we'll see five years from now, um, you know, what that will look like. Bowdoin uh, College was the first uh, private school to do so. This was back in the early 1970s. So for, use, for the UC system to do so, uh, you know, we'll see. Uh, we do know that uh, SAT scores have played a role in stopping a number of students from getting in because they didn't reach the cut score. Uh, we know that SAT scores at best will identify how well you do your first year in college, won't predict whether or not you graduate. Um, but, you know, we'll see. Like I said before, I think the tests uh, are more culturally biased than racially biased. Uh, given the fact that there are people who are non-white who do well on them, uh, low-income and high-income. A lot of kids who attend the charter schools that we support uh, are going to UC schools and doing quite well on the uh, SAT. So I applaud uh, the UC system for taking that uh, jump. The question is, are they doing it more as a post-pandemic decision? Uh, and therefore, we'll do it because, you know, it's probably the right thing to do. In the absence of it, would they have made this decision? I don't know. Uh, but we'll see. And um, at the end of the day, you know, and as you mentioned, systems will now have to come up with additional ways of evaluating students, which will also mean you're going to increase costs associated with bringing in staff yeah, to right. now either read more essays. So, you know, I'm glad to see it take that, you know, that role. Let's go back to me in high school. There's no way I would have gotten accepted to the University of California, Berkeley or UCLA um, because I was in L.A., but I have friends who did. And they were on a track that would have made it happen. And, uh, yeah. in fact, I know for sure few of them were first generation. Uh, did, you know, they came from working class households like myself and they moved in. So, like I said, I'm in a. That's right. Maybe they have that test taking skill, right? I, the other thing I told my daughter is like, I think I've told you, I worked in testing. Test, test taking is a mm-hmm. skill. And some kids yep. are taught that skill and others uh, don't have that advantage. So it is an interesting one to watch. We'll see where it goes. Well, speaking of making changes, this one is from the U.S. Department of Education. It's a press release. In fact, I think it's the first story of the week that is from the U.S. Department of Education. And this is focused on DOE's decision to launch a campaign uh, to reach millions of K-12 students and Pell Grant students and making them eligible for monthly discounts on broadband Internet service. Now, you and I both know from the work that we do in school reform, when we said we supported virtual education or distance learning, we knew that a number of the families that we wanted to reach, there was a broadband issue. We've known that for years, but COVID, of course, has now raised it up to a level of shame for a number of people across the country. So the DOE said, you know what, we're going to do this. They said if you're one of the 6.5 million Pell Grant students, uh, you're now going to qualify for a discount of up to $50 per month 
on uh, bandwidth uh, price. If you are in a eligible home uh, that qualifies uh, tribal lands, you're going to receive a discount up to $75 a month. But they're also going to do this for students who qualify for the National School Lunch Program, for the School Breakfast Program. They're going to make a discount. And part of this is also a broadening of the FCC's Emergency Broadband Benefit Program. Because Mm -hmm. basically, as the U.S. Secretary said, he said COVID-19 pandemic has magnified issues of Internet access and affordability for both K-12 students and college students, particularly students of colors, students in rural and tribal communities, and students from low-income families. And so DOE, uh, along with, uh, you know, uh, Department of Agriculture, are deciding to come together and do a uh, a interagency approach to try to address bandwidth uh, initiative. So with the billions of dollars we've given to school, good to see some of this money going uh, to bandwidth and particularly the students who are low income. But rarely have we seen this focused on students who receive Pell Grants. Uh, That is right now the largest federal aid program in the country uh, for students from uh, low income homes. So glad to see this move forward. Yeah, I mean, it's like it took a pandemic to get this country to address the digital divide, to address broadband issues, to address all of these things that have been holding students back. Who, Because, like, let's be clear, it wasn't just remote learning. As the secretary said, this magnified things. It's even the homework gap, you know, kids, kids not having access to the Internet to be able to gather certain information or complete their homework in many cases. So this is, this is a really big deal. I just... um and I know a lot of our listeners will probably not agree with me on this because of the huge amount of money <laughs> that, is, that is going into these efforts. But, you know, this is just I, I think that it is a golden opportunity to see how we can bridge these gaps. But, man, there are a lot of different programs out there. I love the Pell Grant idea. Um, but states have got to figure out how they're going to coordinate all of these different programs and funding streams and I to to make sure that the right services are getting to the right people at the right time, as well as the fact that, and we've talked about this before with just all the federal stimulus money in general, as well as the fact that like long term, um, you know, these programs don't just like we don't go back to where we were once the federal money runs out. So states have a golden opportunity here to figure it out. Boy, I sure hope they do, because pandemic or not, <clears throat> we live in a connected world. Kids can't survive. Without well, I think well, I think about guests like uh, Marguerite Rosa, uh, who we yeah. had on, you know, not too long ago. She's someone who stakeholders should take a look at. Uh, in terms of, as you said, making sure we know where the money is going to go. And then you reminded me of something we were talking about realizing all of a sudden that we have an issue with bandwidth. Uh, former West Virginia Governor uh, Bob Wise, for over a decade, uh, has really been one of the champions of uh, the issue of really bringing quality education to students in the rural parts of different states across the country. Uh, but using technology, but saying it's one thing to say technology, it's another to actually have access to it. Uh, and guess what? There's something called broadband Internet service that makes a difference. So give it a shout out to him and his colleagues for all the work they've done. And he's surely someone who should be uh, a part of DOE's network as they think about how to, to do this at the local level. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Gerard, coming up. We are going to be talking to the founder of the Hobart Shakespeareans. Um, and our listeners, if you don't know what it is, uh, you're going to find out in just a second. We'll be speaking with Rafe Esquith right after this. Learning Curve listeners, we are pleased to have with us Rafe Esquith. He taught in the public school system in Los Angeles for 32 years. For the last six years, the Hobart Shakespeareans he founded has been run privately. It only works with economically disadvantaged students. 100% of the students in the program are accepted into top universities. Esquith is the only classroom teacher to have been awarded the President's National Medal of the Arts and has also been made a member of the British Empire by Queen Elizabeth II. I want to hear about that. That's pretty cool. His many (laughs) other honors include the Compassion and Action Award from the Dalai Lama. That might be cooler. 
the Walt Disney Award um, National American Teacher of the Year Award, Oprah Winfrey's Use Your Life Award, Parent Magazine's As You Grow Award, the Kennedy Center's Sondheim Inspirational Teacher Award, and People Magazine's Heroes Among Us Award. Esquith has published four books on education, including the international bestseller, Teach Like Your Hair is on Fire. He presented at the prestigious TED conference in 2012. So forerunner of the TED conference. He lives in Los Angeles with his wife, Barbara Tong. Wraith Esquith, welcome to The Learning Curve. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, we're so excited. So, okay, before we jump into questions about what what the Hobart Shakespeareans are and, and what you do, I have to know. Can you tell us which of these awards was actually the coolest? Because that's quite a list. I don't think we've had anybody on with such a... I I think that really the coolest one was the Sondheim from the Kennedy Center. And the reason, which goes right to the reason I teach, is that that award is given when people who are adults petition the Kennedy Center and tell them that they are still using skills they learned from their childhood that they learned from a teacher 20 years earlier. And I always thought that is really the measure of a good teacher. And we're going to talk about that today. So that meant the most to me because it came from my students themselves. I have to say, I I do love geeking out to any Kennedy Center awards on PBS. It's something that I enjoy watching very much. It's pretty cool. Okay, so let's, let's jump right in. So, wow, over 30 years ago, you founded the Hobart Shakespeareans. And it's an organization that teaches socioeconomically disadvantaged elementary school students from Los Angeles a classical humanities curriculum grounded in the plays of William Shakespeare. So tell our listeners, first of all, what this is all about and how you came up with the idea. Thank you. You know, I'd like to preface everything that when you listen to anybody being interviewed, people are looking for positive answers and good things that make us feel good. And I understand that. The dilemma I face is that I work in, I work for 32 years in the school system. And I also have to tell the truth. That matters. Mm -hmm. And these days, I hope we'll all agree, the truth can sometimes be hard to find. Everybody's lying. (laughs) They lie in in the government and the school systems and and all our (laughs) institutions. So when I say things that might be a little bit painful to hear, I'm not, I'm not a negative guy. If I was, I wouldn't be a teacher. But I do think there are some truths we have to face. And the answer to your question was that almost 40 years ago when I was a young teacher, I looked at the school I was in, and this is a fact. Only 32% of the children even finished high school. Forget about college. They, most of them were quitting school before they were 16. Yeah. And I thought to myself, now, wait a minute. Are these kids you know, not very smart? Are they not good kids? And that wasn't the fact. The fact is the system was failing them. And what really was failing them was language. Because the real, the real measure of a teacher is not, I'm sorry, the test at the end of the year or what grade you got. Those things matter. But the real test is what am I giving these children that they will be using for the rest of their lives, not for the test at the end of the year. I always joke with teachers, my wife didn't fall in love with me because of my test scores. That wasn't the big issue. But in the schools, we've made those tests the be-all and end-all of existence, and they aren't. So I realized that if I could teach my students to speak well, to read well, to write well, and to listen well, they would be able to compete with the richer kids across town, and they do, very successfully. Because I like Shakespeare, and he's my guy. You don't have to like Shakespeare. But I just thought, why not teach the kids to speak language through Shakespeare? Um, A a question people ask me, you know, what's the biggest challenge? The biggest challenge is not the students. The biggest challenge is doing this within a system that, as Tom Petty wrote, celebrates mediocrity. And if, if I can share a hilarious but also painful story of what the kids go through, One of my students, when she was an eighth grader, called me in tears, and here's what happened to her. She was in an eighth grade, supposedly honors English class, and the teacher said, we're going to read Romeo and Juliet. Most of the kids groaned, even though they don't know about Shakespeare. They already know they hate him. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, 
Angie, who had read Romeo and Juliet with me when she was 10, was very excited until the teacher took out a stack of comic books. And she said, what are you doing? And he said, we're going to do Romeo and Juliet. And Angie said, that's not Romeo and Juliet. I've read Romeo and Juliet, and that's not it. And he said, well, it's sort of like Romeo and Juliet. And she said, no, it isn't. We should read the real Romeo and Juliet. The teacher said, well, you know, Angie, the kids won't understand it. And Angie said, then why don't you explain it? That's your job. <laughs> Angie Yay, Angie. Re- yeah, but she was removed from the classroom oh. and was forced to go to another class for the rest of the year. Now, the beautiful thing is, cut, cut to four years later, Angie, who comes from a very difficult background, won the Bill Gates Scholarship. She's at Harvard with her entire tuition and graduate school paid for. And the, the story is told that the challenge is, this is what the kids face. It's not that the kids can't do this. The roadblocks are often the system itself. So, yes, good for Angie. I said the same thing to her, Kara. But she was in tears because she thought she had been disrespectful. And I said, no, you just told the truth. So that's yeah, the challenge. Yeah, roadblocks in the system. And, and Absolutely. And it speaks to the power of low expectations, right? We know of the yes. power of high expectations, but the and, power and, of and low Kara, expectations cannot be underestimated. Right. And, and, Kara, let's be honest. I mean, believe me, I know. There are thousands of dedicated, caring teachers who work very hard to try to help kids do their best. But what we need to address is there are more teachers than we want to admit, like the one handing out comic books just to get through the day. And I'm not saying they're not good people. I'm sure they're very good people. But they probably shouldn't be in the classroom because we need people inspiring the best the highest common denominator, not the lowest common denominator. So the system is the challenge, not the children. Yes, and we could probably dedicate another entire show to how it is that we we train teachers to have the expectations they do and the behaviors that they do around all this because that is absolutely a heartbreaking story. I live here just a a mile or two from Harvard, and I would love to look Angie up. And now now that we – we're listening I will now. definitely, I will definitely put the two of you together. Yeah, sure. <laughs> my, my kids would love to meet Angie. So, so I want to ask you though about a challenge that I can imagine. In fact, that I do experience with with my own kids. Right. So sometimes the dinner table conversation. Um, and I'm very lucky, I have to say, to have um, bilingual children. We're a bilingual household. English, Spanish, and um, and sometimes you know phrases will come up and we'll we'll muse over like, well, where did that come from and what does that mean and how did we get here? And unpacking Shakespeare. I mean, I remember this from my own education, which I have to say, reading Shakespeare in my high school was not a pleasant experience either. I remember that very very well. How is it that you help your students encounter? Shakespeare's language and phrases. I mean, kids these days, kids these days, I sound like a really old lady, but, you know, I feel like sometimes I can barely understand what millennials are saying. Right, and right. And so, you know, the phrase, like, it's Greek to me, <laughs> right. rings true. Sure. So, so help me understand how you approach language, because if language is thinking and if writing and reading is thinking, how do you approach this with kids? I love this question, and I'm dying to tell you teachers and parents the way I do it. This is absolutely doable, but we have to accept a certain reality. First of all, beyond Shakespeare, don't forget my students also read James Baldwin, Maya Angelou, Charles Dickens, Mark Twain, and love it. And here's why. The days, and this is what usually happens, even dedicated, let's say a high school teacher, says, hey, we're going to read Huck Finn. Everybody go home, read chapter four, we'll discuss it tomorrow. Now, you know what happens when the kids go home. They do not read Chapter 4. Hmm. No. I'm, not blaming, I'm not blaming the teacher. But in today's society, with computers and the Internet and the distractions, those kids are not going to read it. Maybe the more dedicated students will go on the net and find a few notes so they can survive that classroom discussion. But they're not reading the book. They're not. And they're never going to discover the joy 
of great literature, Shakespeare included. Here's my secret. I never send kids home to read. We read every page together, together, with me as their guide. If you think about it, here's a big mistake we make all over the world. We teach reading poorly. If your child is a violinist, once they can play the violin, they still have a teacher, even for 10 years later, to help them get better, sitting with them, coaching them, right? But once we teach children to decode words, we say, oh, they can read, go home and read this book. It doesn't work that way. They have to have a guide. That's why I get paid the big money. Point two, you said you had a bad experience reading Shakespeare. Do you know what, Kara? Shakespeare is not meant to be read. Do you know the British actor Michael York, who's been a wonderful friend of my class, taught us years ago, in Shakespeare's day, people never said, let's go watch a play. They said, let's go hear a play. That's what they said. Hmm. When, when my students read anything, we have the book in front of us. But the students do not read out loud, and there's a reason for that. I want my students to be readers for life, as I am. I read for hours every day. My question, Kara, is when you read on your own, do you read out loud? No. no. Nobody reads out loud. Why do we do this in school? Well, the idea is that we want to see if the kids are getting it. But what it really does, especially for shy children, it puts them under pressure, and it makes them nervous to read in front of others. What we do in our class is all the kids have the text, but we listen to a professional audio recording. There's no pressure on the children whatsoever except to hear the words that they're seeing on the page. If you think of eating food, you taste the food, but you also see the food, you smell the food. That's all part of the experience. When my students read, they're reading, but they're also hearing they're using more of their senses. Think of your children, how they acquired language. They didn't study it in the book. They heard it, right? Constantly. Why yeah. in the world, why in the world do we think that they should acquire? Wait, 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 let's look at it this way. Your kids, all kids learn five million pop songs and rap songs by hearing them. <laughs> when my students hear language, they memorize entire passages instantly within days because they've heard it and the beautiful thing about playing professional audios is one they hear language spoken perfectly and as my students are not english as first language learners what a wonderful way for them to acquire by hearing the best speakers read and they love it and when phrases come up that they don't understand or their geographical references or historic references I'm right there to help them even before the chapter begins to say, listen, this is coming up today. Let's be ready for this. That's what I'm there for. So we read together and I encourage parents, as I did with my own children, have a family reading hour where you read together. That's how they acquire the language so easily. That's amazing. And we've had previous guests, her name is escaping me on this show, who talked about the importance of reading aloud, even with Older children, which is, I think, something that a, a thread that just re that's really um, resonating with me. What you've just Carol, said. Carol, I'm I'm 66 years old right now. I'm reading uh, Middlemarch by George Eliot. Oh, I love still it. I do, but I read it with listening to it aloud. I listen to it just as I tell my students to do. I read this way. It makes the experience better for me, much better. And by the way, if anybody listening has read. Maya Angelou's great book, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. Mm -hmm. the, the woman in the book counsels the young Maya, don't just read the text, listen to it. So this is not an original thought by me. A lot of great minds have realized this is the way to inspire children to delve deeper into the language and to celebrate the language. Oh, you're making me want to go invest in some good audio books. I have another question about language that I'm really curious for you to answer. And that is, let's face it. So Shakespeare, Shakespeare is violent. Um, oh, yeah. And, and oh, yeah. the other authors that you mentioned that I'm so pleased to hear that your students are reading or listening to 
also violence, some, some more about cultural violence, the violence, the cultural and racial violence we and society perpetrate on one another. But in this world where, boy, are we dealing front and center if we haven't in the past with just incredible violence. How is Shocking. it that you, yeah. yeah, and it's, it's, you know, I think it's something that, uh, probably a teacher's instinct, a parent's instinct is, I, I protect my children from this for as long as I can, right? How right. do you deal with the, these very violent themes, um, in Shakespeare and the other works? Okay. Great question. Remember, when my students read, I'm right there. So for example, and this is very depressing to me, <laughs> I don't know if you're aware that there are school systems now banning books, great books, supposedly to protect the children. Uh, in Burbank here in California, they just outlawed John Steinbeck, Mark oh Twain. Goodness. Yeah, unbelievable stuff. Any book that has, for example, a racial epithet, a word, words that I would never, ever use, but are in the books because they're part of a character's speech. For example, in John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men, there's an mm -hmm. African-American stable buck on a, on a ranch in California in the 1930s. And he deals with racism, and people call him terrible names. John Steinbeck is not promoting this. It's the world as it was in 1930. It's a fact. Yeah. And school districts are banning such books, feeling that it's teaching children you know, to call people those words. That's ridiculous. That's In fact, the opposite might be true. <laughs> well, especially, especially when the parent or the teacher is right there to lead these discussions. As I joke, my students study Hamlet with me all the time. None of them have killed anybody with a sword, had <laughs> sex with their mother, or stabbed someone through a curtain. Because, because they realize, because their teacher has explained, it's a play. It's not real life. It's, it's a play. And that's why we read with children to help guide them that, yes, this is a horrible scene. I want my students to be horrified by violence. I want them to be horrified by racism. I want them to be horrified by sexism. And surely it's better to have a qualified teacher or parent guiding them instead of them learning stuff on the internet or from their friends on their, on their chat rooms. Mm -hmm. So I don't shy away from these things. It's a part of their life. And by the way, <laughs> I mean, you're a parent. If you don't think 10 year olds know a lot about this stuff, you are sadly <laughs> mistaken. Mis misunderstanding what they're exposed to despite your best efforts. That's right. It's a part of the Even world. Even if they don't uh, spend a lot of time on the internet, they are exposed at, to it. In various listen, ways. I'm, my, my, my four children did not watch television growing up. Believe me, we were protective. But to pretend that there is not racism in the world, that's, that's, that is more damaging than trying to pretend it doesn't exist. The only way we can solve these problems is to teach young people that they are a serious problem and they can be part of the solution. It's great here, for me here. to teach my, it's, it's great for me to teach my boys about some of the sexism in Shakespeare. And tell them, you know, this is really good for you to see that because we don't treat women this way. You know, we're not Petruchio in Taming of the Shrew. He's a fun character to read and to learn from, but doesn't mean we want to be him. And it's, it's great. You use all these, these controversial moments as teachable moments instead of things to pretend don't exist. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> You know, it makes a lot of sense, and in fact, it's a great transition uh, to my part. I grew up in Los Angeles. Uh, fact, I'm so on, sorry. In the yeah, the <laughs> Crenshaw District of Los Angeles, and I know a lot. That's of where I started teaching. Bar. That's where I started. I taught it. Uh, my student teaching was at Crenshaw on 65th. Mm-hmm. I know that area well, and so in I talking for this show, I said. This, uh, so this is someone who knows my area, and then, of course, I know about your work. So having lived in the neighborhood and in the community and with the families uh, who you worked with, I can say firsthand that you have fundamentally changed the worldview of how people think when they, about Crenshaw. When they hear Crenshaw, it's like Harlem 
all these ideas come to mind, and some of it's true and some of it's imaginary, but these are real-life right. people, and, you, and you're using Shakespeare uh, to open up a door. So as someone who grew up there, let me just say thank you for the great work that, you, that you've, you've done. Thank you. So here's my question. Number one, in your public speeches, you've talked a lot about your students and how you've, you know, incentivize values and the importance right. of taking difficult classes and talking about classical works. But some of that also focuses on integrity, love of learning. You know, how do you, you know, in, in your worldview, how do you discuss some of the benefits of a rigorous K-12 humanities curriculum compared to the average less ca- uh, classical curriculum where teachers just move along? With the, with Another the great question. I, I got the answer for you. Again, let's be honest. I've done this all over the world. If you go up to any kid in school, and I've done this in China, I've done this in Australia, it's always the same. And a kid is working on an assignment. He's doing his math or he's writing an essay. And you ask him, why are you doing your work? Why are you doing that assignment? What do you think the kid will say? He'll say, because my teacher told me to. Because it's an assignment. Exactly. Because mm-hmm. it's due on because it's due on Friday. Because if I don't do this, I won't get a good grade. Something like that. Uh, by the way, the funniest answer. Sometimes I ask a kid, "Why are you doing your work?" And they say, "I don't know," <laughs> which at least is honest. But I <laughs> teach my I teach my students a different answer. If you ask one of my students, "Why are you doing your math? Why are you working on that science project? Why are you?" reading James Baldwin, why are you reading Mark Twain? They will put down their pencils or their books and they'll look you right in the eye and they will say this sentence, if I learn this skill, my life will be better. If I learn this skill, my life will be better. In my classroom, we are never getting ready for a test. We are never trying to get a good grade and we don't care about the show we're about to do. We are practicing skills that we're going to use in our life 20 years from now. And most teachers tell children, hey, kids, here's what we're going to do today. But I tell the students, here's why we are doing these things today. And it's my job to show them that if they can, for example, speak language well, it doesn't have to be Shakespeare, any language. If you can look into a group of people and communicate your ideas, that's a good thing. That's going to help you if you're in business or if you're teaching or if you're working in the doctor's office. Those skills of communication are going to serve you much better than just being able to answer number 23, A, B, C, or D. And that's my job. If you watch one of our Shakespeare plays, remember, my students are not going to be Shakespearean actors. They don't want to be. But you should see the respect they have for each other, their ability to work together, the needle-sharp stillness they have for one another, and their incredible efforts. That's going to serve them well, whether they're, you know, doing a podcast or working as an architect. It's why. That's how the students buy in to that rigorous curriculum. And the proof is, because I've stuck with it for 40 years, I have an army of former students very happy and successful, who continue to visit and tell the younger ones, yeah, you got to listen to Rafe. He knows what he's talking about. I'm doing real well. Here's my wife. Here's my family. He really helped me, and he can help you. And they listen to the former students more than they listen to me, kids from their neighborhoods. Exactly. There's a saying, if you can see it, you can be it. Yes, that's absolutely true. And it's not just theory. One of the, one of the, the, the sad realities, and I, again, I'm not trying to be negative, but teaching has become so hard that so many potentially great teachers give up after a few years. And yeah. I understand that because it's frustrating and you fail. And I want your audience to understand, I fail all the time. All the time. You know, things go wrong. I mean, that's part of the job. So when you have, you know, you know, successful teachers who say every child is a golden drop of sunshine. Every day is a great day. I'm sorry. That's just not true. (laughs) This is really hard. Uh, You know, we deal with problems of domestic violence and alcoholism in the home that sometimes, despite my best efforts, 
you still fail. But the beauty is, if you stick with it as I have, you get better at it. So you were talking about if you can see it, you can be it. I do help kids now that maybe 30 years ago I wouldn't have helped because I know more. Hmm. And I've learned and I've learned from my failures. And, and that's what I love about the job. When people say, aren't you tired of doing the same thing over and over again? It's never the same. It's different every year. And I like that challenge. So doing some of the math, were you in Los Angeles, uh, I guess, post watch riots? Oh, yeah. Yep. And also yep. and also post, post Rodney King and post Rodney King riots. Ninety two. Yeah. Oh, my God. In, in, in 92, our whole, our whole block went up. It was, it was bad. It was really bad times. Yeah, I was teaching fifth grade in Los Angeles at the same time and remember being out of school at least a week, some schools two weeks because yeah, of what happened. Yeah. So, so let's, yeah. let's just take that experience. Sure. Um, so today we're talking a lot about racism. Uh, we're yeah. also talking about anti-Semitism. When yeah. we talk today to young people, we talk as if this is something new. But even if we say it's an old issue, we often don't go to classic texts to discuss right. it. No, no one's going to, we don't go to the Merchant of Venice to talk about right. anti-Semitism. We don't talk about Othello for racism. And the racism, talk right? How, yeah, talk about how we can explain to relatively young people the complex and serious aspects of this across space and time. Well, first of all, again, when kids are young, it's the only world they know. An enormous part of my classroom is the study of history. We travel all over the country and the world to learn about history so that they don't make the mistake you're talking about. My students were laughing recently, not, not laughing in a happy way, but in a bitter way. It's great that right now people are very concerned about Asian hate and all the hate crimes against Asian people. Mm -hmm. But a lot of my students, but a lot of my students have said, well, look who just woke up. This <laughs> is yeah. nothing new because they do read a lot of literature when, you know, and, and, you know, it's wonderful. It's fantastic that our country is now questioning what's going on in the African-American communities with police. It's great that they're, but this is nothing new. If you mm -hmm. study the history of our country, if you understand about things like the 1619 project that some people in Congress want to stop, because my students study all those things, when they read it in Shakespeare or where they read horrible scenes of rape in, let's say, Toni Morrison or Maya Angelou, they understand mm -hmm. that what a lot of kids think of as new is not new. Maybe they can be a small part of the solution by the way they treat people and the fact that they bring things up and that maybe a, a kid who isn't an African-American who decides to march with Black Lives Matter because the understanding, because they read Hemingway, that every man's death diminishes me. They know that line. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. they don't say, well, that's not my people. It's not my problem. Literature and an understanding of history makes them understand it's everybody's problem. It's our problem. But we can also be part of the solution. And that's why I think reading a divert, that's the other problem of, of reading, it's the, the, the literature in schools is not diverse. They don't they're, they're banning controversial authors or authors of different points of view or authors from the left or authors from the right. I want the students to read all of it. They need to to have better information to make better decisions about their own lives. Closing question. If you're right, there are a lot of teachers who lead the profession Love the yeah. students, love the school, yeah. just tired Absolutely. of a lot of a lot of things going on. You know, yeah. what are two things you can say to that teacher who may think about not going back to the classroom uh, this September, either because of the pandemic or for reasons that pre predated the pandemic, but it only made it worse? I certainly can't judge them. I understand. I, I, I recently did a webinar with all the teachers of Thailand, and I'm telling you, some of them are ready to jump off a bridge. They're just going crazy there with the difficulties. It's, it's a mm. worldwide problem. When people say, I just can't do this anymore, I never criticize or, you know, it's not for everybody. What I can say for some of us, and this is what I try and talk to young teachers about, I'm somebody, you, you want to try and develop what they call that teaching temperament. Yes, I've been honored by presidents and world leaders. and It's nice. 
it's not as much fun as sitting and reading with my class. It really isn't. It really isn't. There's nothing as much fun with me still of helping a young person turn on that light bulb. And it's, it's fantastic. So what I try to work with those teachers, if they can understand that the work itself is the reward, it certainly isn't going to be financial. It's not going to be a pat on the back. I laugh because I'm a big Dodgers fan. And by the way, for all the Boston people, thank you for Mookie Betts. Thank you for Mookie Betts, Boston. I really appreciate it. (laughs) (laughs) We we all do. (laughs) But (laughs) sorry, all the people in Boston now are mad at the Dodgers. But (laughs) it's okay. Pioneer will forgive you for that one. I'm not Uh, a Red Sox fan, but I've already admitted that on the show. So, (laughs) (laughs) but 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 the point is that for teachers who understand that the only real reward is working and making that kid's life a little bit better, I beg them to go back, and I want them to remember, since we're talking baseball, that the best baseball players fail 70% of the time at the plate. A 300 hitter fails 70% of the time. And sometimes teachers feel like failures, I'm sorry, because bureaucrats who come up with these ridiculous expressions like, Every child will succeed. When they don't, these young teachers feel like failures, and they're not. The failure is giving up. We tell our students, don't give up, and we can't give up. We're the role models. We have to be the people we want the kids to be. We don't have to be perfect. But one thing my students know about me, I just don't give up. (laughs) No matter what happens, I will not give up. And it inspires them to feel the same way when they go through their hard times, as we all do. But the really important thing for the the teachers who are really unhappy, no, no, move on. It's not for everybody. Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing those words. And speaking of sharing words and reading aloud, uh, is there something you'd like to to read to close us out today? Uh, Sure. Um, We've been talking a lot about relationships. And, um, you know, uh, the play Midsummer Night's Dream has a great – speech by Theseus, where he talks about lovers and madmen. And he says that the lunatic, the lover, and the poet are of imagination all compact. In other words, that there isn't a big difference between lunatics and lovers and poets. They're all kind of similar. And in these days where emotions are running so high and there's so much anger, and so much misinformation and people getting angry with each other. Mm. I try to tell, when I was talking before about reading with children, what we can do with students is when they have these difficult problems and difficult feelings and emotions about love and sometimes hate and anger, then it's our job with literature and with ourselves as an example to show them you're not the only one who ever felt that way. Other people have stood in your shoes. But I can help you get out. I can help you negotiate your feelings because not because I'm smarter. I'm just older and wiser. And you may be in a hole, but I've been in that hole too, and I can show you the way out. And that's why I love Shakespeare because there's no situation that he doesn't discuss that you can relate to a child's life and help him be a little bit happier and do a little bit better and have a better future. And that's what we're here for. Well, Ray Fesswith, thank you so very much for joining us today on The Learning Curve. It was a delight. Gerard, we always uh, end with our Tweet of the Week, and I'm having a hard time believing that it is yet another anniversary of this, uh, of a very well, probably one of the most important cases in American history. So the tweet is from at UR Daily History, 17th of May, 1954. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled 9-0 that separate public schools for black and white children is unconstitutional in Brown v. Board of Education. So we have had guests on to speak about this case, to speak about its implications, to speak about all that we have and have not done in the name of equity and uh, improving our our um, educational systems. Uh, and here we are, Gerard, 1954. Um, 
where do you think, how, how far have we come today, my friend, or how far have we not come since this monumental decision? We've had a black president. We have a woman and African-American person of color who is vice president uh, in this five uh, areas where Brown was the case. Uh, you've had either non-white superintendents, school teachers. So there's been a lot of progress made. Of course, there's still uh, some challenges. You know, Cheryl Brown Henderson has been a guest uh, on our show. Yep. And I had a chance to reach out to her yesterday as a way of saying, you know, happy, you know, Brown v. Board of Education Day. And she noted that she was leaving to go see her mother, who is 100 years old. Wow. And, oh. you know, just to imagine. So she's still living, still moving forward. And I always recommend to young people that they go and, and take a look and read, you know, her book uh, that she published Absolutely. called Recovering Untold Stories. And it's about the families uh, in the Brown decision and what happened to them, the good, the bad, and the hopeful. But the you know, big takeaway for me is the fact that you and I can have this conversation today uh, without any real threat that a black man and a white woman having a conversation and that being something that was scandalous just in and of its nature, or the fact that I'm in Virginia and in 1954 – uh, if you and I, for example, wanted to get married, that was illegal. You know, that took place with the loving yeah. case years later. Or the fact that we wanted our children if our kids to wanted in a public to pool. Together. Yep, that wasn't going to happen. So, no, there's been a lot of progress. Yes, there have been. There's still some areas to go, but uh, we are a safer and saner nation because of uh, what uh, the Brown families, or the families of Brown, had to do. And uh, glad we could celebrate it 67 years later. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for that optimistic note. And I always think of in the world of education policy that this case was the absolute catalyst for helping us even have a conversation about what, you know, public education should look like for all kids, for what it means. Um, and there have been a lot of mistakes made since then, but I am with you, always moving incrementally forward to understand how our systems can be better for kids. And listeners, don't miss next week. We're going to be back with Dr. Farouk Albaz. He is the retired director of the Center for Remote Sensing. I didn't even know that was a thing at Boston University and research professor in its departments of archaeology, earth and environment, and electrical and computer engineering. He was supervisor of lunar science planning for NASA's Apollo program, which means we get to talk about cool space stuff. Gerard, have a wonderful week. Um, read some Shakespeare aloud. To your Shakespeare <laughs> tonight. And, and I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Take care. <laughs>